Here, uh, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, your word is full of promises. Um, it's uh, filled with flowers of sweet, fragrant fruit of refreshing flavor when received by faith. So God, may we be made rich in its riches, strong in its power, happy in its joy. May we abide in its sweetness, feast on its preciousness, and draw vigor from its manna. Lord, as we read and think upon your word, increase our faith, transform our lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Turn to Judges, Old Testament again. Judges chapter 17, please. Judges chapter 17. I want to read um, <clears throat> just the first six verses. Judges chapter 17, please. This is the word of the Lord. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, uh, when Advent came, we, we, we had been working our way through Judges, and, and we stopped uh, because uh, I at least thought it would be best for us to take some Advent themes, so we did some passages in Isaiah. I trust they were helpful for your uh, worship during that Advent season. A number of you asked me this question, though. You asked, are you going to finish Judges? And I said, no. And you urged me to. And I didn't give the reasons why I wasn't going to finish Judges, And frankly, why hardly anybody finishes Judges uh, when preaching or even teaching uh, uh, through it. But but here are the basic reasons. Um, Indeed, when I preached through Judges in 1995, I didn't preach 17, 18, 19, 20, or 21. Here's the reason. Number one, that the last judge is Samson in chapter 16. So we figure we're finished with all the judges, at least, given the title of this particular book. Uh, Secondly... Frankly, there's a very disturbing scene in chapter 19 that could cause nightmares for children and maybe adults too. And so often it's not a chapter that's read aloud in, in uh, worship. Not that it's a bad chapter, not that it's not helpful, not that it's not the word of God, but just given its nature, it's in a uh, group of people that angels raise from very young to somewhat older that uh, perhaps uh, that's why. 
And thirdly, it's quite different, these passages, because it's, first of all, uh, not simply no judges but in it, but, but it's out of uh, order. It's uh, chronologically, it doesn't fall time-wise after Samson. It's very likely that the events that we read in these chapters took place, if we're going to put it in the right uh, timeline, would take place very early in Judges, uh, perhaps around the time of the first judge, Othniel. Um, that doesn't mean, again, that it was added later. We don't believe it was part of the whole, but it's just different. And given all that, most just sort of finish at chapter 16. But you've guilted me into uh, not quitting. And so at least I'll take this up. I'll check with a few moms next week about the, the rest of it. But uh, let's see uh, if you think it's appropriate or not. But, uh, um, but, but this, this passage um, we'll take up. But one author put it like this. He says, these chapters are showing us what life was like when Israel was left to their own resources. This view of humanity without God is so bleak that these passages are almost never preached or studied. That picture interest, doesn't it? Um, but, but this sense that, that, that what we're going to see here is what Israel was like day to day was really taking place. You know, we, we read about the judges. We saw in the very introduction to the book in the first couple of chapters that we would experience, we'd see this cycle where, where Israel, the people of Israel in various places would, would forget God and therefore begin to worship idols, the, the gods of the nations around them. And then God would discipline them, judge them, and he would do that by bringing an oppressor, another nation, another peoples, and to, to oppress the Israelites. To enslave them. And after a while, uh, they would become miserable in this situation. They would cry out to God, and God would come to them. And sometimes that was probably a cry of repentance. We've seen our sin. Other times, perhaps not. But, but God would be gracious to them and, and supply a judge, a deliverer, who would deliver them. And as long as the judge lived, then they would live in peace. And then the judge would die, and we'd see this cycle again and again. Here, it breaks the cycle. It doesn't break the cycle. It just takes us to a different time and place. And gives us a different view and says, this is what was happening during all those cycles. This is what life in Israel uh, looked like. And what made it so bleak, what made it so difficult, we see in this verse 6 that I read, which, which really helps us to understand the whole of Judges. And, and we've, we even referred to it from time to time. But it doesn't really appear until this passage, until this verse 6 of chapter 17. And the verse is, in those days... There is no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In fact, this gets reiterated in chapter 18 and verse 1 in somewhat abbreviated form. Uh, We just simply have, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And then again in chapter 19 and verse 1, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Just to kind of cue us to remember, this is what is happening when there's no king. And then the last verse of the entire book is that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And of course, the author of of Judges isn't saying to us that any king would do, but is saying what we needed to have was a king who led his people righteously. It was the righteous representative of God to his people. And he would lead his people into the right living, into right worship of God. And then we have the phrase, uh, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It really means that no one did what was right in God's eyes. That's sort of the flip of that. 
And so what we have in these chapters is what happens when God allows people to go their own way. That's what makes it so bleak. God allows people to go their own way. So what value would that have for us to to consider? Well, first of all, it's in the scripture, so it's valuable. But in this way, I think, for believers, it's kind of like, you know the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? If you don't know that movie, I don't know if I can be your friend. Uh, No. Uh, But but, I don't know how you miss it. It's on like 14 different times a day on every channel from starting at about Thanksgiving on through Christmas. But, and you should watch in the black and white, of course. But uh, it, it's, a, it, it, it's a film about this man, George Bailey, who, who thinks his life is rather mundane and, and inconsequential. But through a series of events, he has opportunity to see what the world would be like if he was never born. And he sees that as a great gift to be able to see that. Well, this is somewhat like that in a sense. This gives us a view of what we would be like, what life would be like for us as believers if we were never born again. This is what it would be like. And I think as we think about these passages, we'll end up being very grateful that through no act of our own, through no goodness of our own, through nothing in ourselves, God decided to be gracious to us and enable us to see him and believe so that this isn't true of us. But also there's something, at least for me as I read this, is a bit of a warning. It keeps reminding me, Bill, don't go back there. Bill, don't live like that. Bill, if you, uh, then this could be true. So watch your life. And then please, if you're an unbeliever, you may think, well, this doesn't describe my life. I can only say that according to God, it does. Take it to heart. So what's, uh, what's here? Well, chapter 17 is, is kind of the beginning of this story. We're actually going to go through two chapters, but I'll, I'll have to summarize a good bit to get us there. But in chapter 17, what we see as it opens up, it takes place in this household of Micah, a guy named Micah, not Micah the prophet, just a guy named Micah. And, uh, and he's really uh, in a wealthy family. His mother has 1,100 pieces of silver. Some have estimated that could be the wages of a laborer for 100 years. So that's a lot of wealth, and, 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 and thus they have this compound, really more than one house, but this compound, this whole large family. And what happens is the story begins is that she realizes that someone has stolen her 1,100 pieces of silver, silver, so she pronounces a curse on the thief. Now her son hears that and realizes, I'm in trouble because I'm the thief. He stole his mother's 1,100 pieces of silver, and when he hears the curse... No doubt out of superstition, thinking this curse might come true. He returns the money, confesses, returns the money. She blesses him. And, and so you kind of think, well, this isn't so bad, I guess. She's blessing her son. And then she takes the 1,100 pieces and she says, I'm going to dedicate in your name this wealth to God. And you think, well, okay. And then... She doesn't actually do that. She only takes about 20% of it, 200 pieces of silver. And she has an idol carved out of it, an image. And then, no doubt, has it overlaid with 
silver. In the name of the Lord. And we're thinking, I don't think the Lord would like that. But that's what's happening. And then Micah, her son, takes this image. It might be one image or two. We're not quite sure. Because typically what would happen is they would take wood and carve an image and then put the metal silver over it. But here it says there's a carved image and a metal image. So maybe there's two, likely one. But he takes it and puts it in his shrine. And, and shrine is literally translated the house of God or gods. And so there he has his own little tabernacle right there. And if you know anything about the Bible, you're scratching your head going, I don't think he should have that. And then not only does he have this carved image, but he also has an ephod, which is what priests are to wear. And not only that, he ordains or anoints his son to be the priest. And you're going, I don't think that should, no, he shouldn't probably do that. And then also in this shrine are these household gods, which are the little figurines, uh, look like people, little people, and uh, could be ancestors. And they were used uh, when you had a question, you needed guidance, you would go to these household gods. And you're thinking, I don't think that's how Moses set it up. I don't think that's the way it, it, it should be. And then you get this phrase, ah. Micah was doing what he thought was right. Not only what he thought was right, and this is the scary part of it. He thought he was doing what God thought was right. He thought he'd be blessed by God to do this, as we'll see in a minute. Well, in the midst of all that, this uh, Levite from Bethlehem walking around looking for work, and he happens upon Micah's place, and so Micah actually hires him to be his priest to join his son and now he thinks this is even better i have a legitimate priest he's from the house of levi those are the priests and so now i have a a real priest and so he pays him and the, the 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 priest is excited about that and at the very end of all that verse 13 we read then micah said now i know that the lord will prosper me because i have a levite as priest and we're thinking i don't think so But he thinks so. And that's scary. Because it's not like he's trying to be an outright pagan. It's not like he's trying to run away from God entirely and ignore God and all that. He just he thinks this is the right way to be in relationship with God. And so he's, he's worse than someone who just runs from God. He's deceived. And so he has this false sense of Peace, I know God will, the Lord will prosper me. And what's fascinating is he's talking about Jehovah, Yahweh. In, in your Bible, you probably have the word Lord in capital letters. And that's the personal name of God for his people. It isn't one of the more generic words for God, like Elohim or any of those in Hebrew. It's, it's, it's Jehovah. It's, it's the Lord God. And so you get this sense that he thinks he's in relationship with God. And we go, no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think this is, is that way. And, and, and we realize that he's violating how God set up worship. God said, no, I'll make a tabernacle. That will be where my presence will be. That will be where my priests will be. That will be where the sacrifices should be made. And, and the tabernacle at that time was in Shiloh. They, they could have gone there to worship. They prayed at home and gone there for sacrifice and all of that. But, but for his own convenience, his own way, he thought this was the right way to go. And not only that, clearly violating how it is we're to worship God 
when Moses received the word from the Lord on Mount Sinai, you know this, chapter 20 in Exodus, the Lord spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And we have two commandments here. They sound alike, but, but really... There's a very significant difference between the two. The first one says you shouldn't have any false gods. The second says you shouldn't worship the true God falsely. You should have no other gods, nor should you have images of God. You see. And what he had was an image of God, which God outlaws. Now, why does he do that? Why does God say you you can't have any images of me? Well, it's because God knows that no human being can capture all of God is in an image created by a human being. How how can we display the glory of God, the fullness of who God is in an image that we construct, in an image that, that, that we make? See, the great danger is that we'll obscure God's glory or will convey false ideas about him. The operative question is found in Isaiah in chapter 40 and verse 18. And the question is this, to whom will that, I'm sorry, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? And the answer is what? Well, we don't know any, anyone, anything like God. There's nothing with whom we can compare him. He's unique. He's God. How can we come up with anything like that? And in Isaiah, in chapter 40 and other chapters, speaks about who this God is. For instance, in verse 9 of Isaiah 40, he says, listen, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift, lift it up. Fear not, says They say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He's powerful. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He's gentle and caring and compassionate. He'll carry the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are are with young. So he's, he's, he's all powerful. It is perfectly gentle. Like a shepherd who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? In other words, he's perfectly wise. He knows everything. He's all powerful, perfectly gentle and compassionate and he knows everything. Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are count, accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon, Lebanon would not suffer for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. 
All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. In other words, you take the greatest nation of all time. All nations and everything in it. And compare it with God. And, and you won't even be able to see the nation. It's like nothing. How can we construct something that looks like that? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem been taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. I mean, tornadoes and hurricanes, they're massive and terrible. They're actually nothing like the power of God. Well, something like it, but but his is so much greater. He just goes, and it goes. How can we, how can we capture that? How can we capture that? To whom will then you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He says, everything is exactly as I want it to be. Have you not known? Have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He doesn't grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to whom he has no might. He increases strength. Even youths faint shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Who can, who can make something like that? And you look at it and you go, I see God in all of its fullness. He says, no, no, trust me. You can't do that. You don't know anything like anyone like me. And so if you try to do that with an image, what you'll find is that you'll not be able to capture my glory. And you'll deceive. And your worship will be false. Perhaps the, the best uh, example of this we have is the golden calf. If you read that incident in Exodus 32, what you realize is that the intent of Aaron was to create an image of God for the people to worship. Not another God, but, but an image of God to say, well, look here, this is the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is, this, this is God. It's an image of God. And in some ways, it may have represented God well, a calf, a bull, powerful. But somehow it missed the glory of God. Somehow it missed what was happening up on the mountain with Moses, with the smoke and all of that. Somehow it missed the love and the wisdom. I don't think you look at a bull and you go, that's the smartest thing I've ever seen. Right? going to miss it somehow. And and what happened is that, that, that that image created false worship. In fact, when Moses came down the mountain, what he saw, he says, the people have broken loose, which means morally they're wild. There's no restraints. And the worship of God isn't supposed to lead to that. The worship of God is to lead to humility and gratitude and obedience. Love, you see. And it didn't. And that's what happens with images. Now, we're probably not at a great risk necessarily of creating 
a visual image of God like that. But we have to be careful with our minds. J.I. Packer, in writing about this, which he does from time to time, puts it like this. He says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything. This forbids not worshiping many gods. First commandment covered that. But imagining the true God as like yourself or something lower. God's real attack is on mental images of which metal images are more truly the consequence than the curse. That was cute. Did you catch that? Uh, Packer said, not on mental images, but on of which metal images are the consequence, not the cause. The cause is the mental image. When Israelites worshipped God in the form of a golden bull calf, they were using their imagination to conceive him in terms of power without purity. That was their basic sin. And if imagination leads our thoughts about God, we too shall go astray. No statement starting, this is how I like to think about God, should ever be trusted. An imagined God will always be quite imaginary and unreal. The best question to ask anyone, ourselves included, we're talking about God, is who says? Who says that's true about God? How do you know that, that that's true about God? You think this up? Was it your friend? Was it from the scripture? Where did it come? Where did it originate? Did God reveal it? Is this really who God really is? We have a tendency, I'm afraid, to filter out what our hearts don't want to accept about God. We want him as a God of love, but we want to filter out his wrath. Uh, We don't want him to be sovereign over all things when we don't like how things turn out. We like God to fit into our thinking, into our way of life, our culture. We know science, therefore, he can't be the creator. God is love, thus he can't be the judge. Um, We desire to live lives of abundance and greed, so we make God to be the God of prosperity. We don't want to suffer pain or anything like that, so we make God the God of health. Um, We don't want God to define us. And so we live according to our passions. And it leads some to accept ways of living that are contrary to God's word and to accept unholy matrimonies and unions. We want to make subjective what is objective to God. I can't tell you how many times people have shared with me their sins and then said, but, but that's okay because I have a peace about it. As if it's okay if we have a peace about it. I've had couples come to me who are not married but sexually active, intimate, and say, well, that's okay because we prayed about it and we have a peace about this. Or couples coming and saying, I know we don't have the biblical reason for divorce, but we've prayed about it and we have a peace about it. Therefore, and so we make this peace about it, the standard, and God has his own and we ignore it. But I said the scary part here is that 
that Micah thinks that he's really uh, pleasing the Lord. If you recently read through uh, Romans 1 about the judgment of God and allowing people to go their own way, it's a fascinating read, of course, because it's in the Bible, but it's so eye-opening. In the middle of Romans 1, verse 21, for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. In other words, they said, I'm going to make God in my own image. I'm going to make God to be like me. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now, when I read that expression, that God gave them up, I'm thinking, I mean, it takes all my breath away. I'm thinking, this is a horrible thing. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, I'm thinking at this point, That should be enough to turn them around. That should be enough to say, my life is miserable. I need God. But you see, at this point, God has given them over to these things. And so their life isn't like that. They actually think all is well. Notice, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They're saying, this is the way to really live. They're oblivious to who God really is. And I would suggest that Micah in this passage is is quite there. Even in the sense that he's baptizing all that he's doing in the name of the Lord. And the Lord isn't pleased with him. But he doesn't know it. He doesn't get it. You see, in our culture, spirituality and religiosity isn't on the decline. It's actually on the rise. If you talk to people... They think we're way more spiritual now than we've ever been. But it has nothing to do with the true and living God. Because you see, we're made to worship. And if we don't know who God really is, then we'll make it up. And we'll make up a God. And we'll worship that God. And we'll think all is well. That's the scary part. You're a believer in Jesus. The truth of the matter is that God has saved you from that. That God has saved you from that. You can't put down this guy, Micah, and say, what a fool. That's you and me. Until God changed us. We had no right to it. We didn't deserve it. 
but he did it. That's why I read this passage. And I go, whew, thank you. Thank you, Lord, really. Now, please, you please do this in the lives of others. This one and that one and this one and that one. As we pray, as we share with these others this truth. Because this is sad, what we read. This is bleak, what we read in Judges. It's bleak, what we read in Romans 1. And that's what we pray, you see. Well, chapter 18, as quick as I can do it. Um, it begins again, this no king in Israel. So what we have here is there's another tribe. There's a tribe called Dan. And Dan is looking for land. They haven't settled yet as they were supposed to settle, but they haven't settled yet. So they send out some spies, typical of the Israelites. They send out some spies to spy out some land. So they go this route, and the particular route they're taken is through Micah's compound. And when they get to Micah's compound, you should read this this week, it's really interesting. When they, when, when they get to Micah's compound, they see this priest, this Levite, and, and they recognize him. They say, we know you, small world. And uh, we know you. And, and so they say, listen, can we inquire of you? Will you help us? Will our task be successful? Will we find a place to land? And, 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 and he says, yes, uh, yes. The Lord said, you'll be successful. They believe him. He's this priest for hire, you know? And so, they, but they, they believe him. And so they go in their way and they find this place. Uh, Laish, they find this place and they realize it's isolated and the people have this great sense of security there because they're so isolated. And not only that, they're wealthy. They have everything you could possibly want. And so they said, this is the place for us. So they go back home, get all their people. They go back through. When they go back through, they go through Micah's place again. This time, when they go through Micah's place, they steal his shrine. They take the image that his mother had given him. They take the household gods. They take the ephod. They even take his priest by paying him more money. Now, just parenthetically, I don't know how you could take great confidence in a god you could steal from someone else. But that's the world in which they lived. Or, or you could have confidence in a priest that you paid more money to bid him away from his former shrine. And still, you're not worshiping where you're supposed to be worshiping anyway, in the way that you're supposed to be worshiping. But anyway, they take all of this and they run. Here's one of the most pathetic verses in all of Scripture. It's in chapter 18, in verse 24. So when Micah come home, comes home, he realizes they stole his shrine and, and even took his priest. So he runs after them. And verse 24 of chapter 18 says, And he said, You take my gods that I made. Now that's just a fascinating expression. You think at that moment in time, you'd go, hmm, maybe, <laughs> you know, the gods that I have made and the priest and you go away and what have I left? And you want to just take him and pinch his cheeks and say, Micah, honey, you didn't lose anything. That was really nothing. I, I know you think it was everything, but what a gift that they took it because it was doing you no good at all, but you can't see it, can you? 
You think that was your life? You think that was, gave meaning to you? That you think, oh, that was purpose for you? Security for you? Help for you? It was nothing for you. It just, it just, it just paving the way to hell for you. So, so, but he didn't get it. And the men to which he said, simply put it to him like this, said, hey, wait, you should be careful what you say. We have some crazy guys here. They'll kill you. And so he went home. And you think, oh. It's so easy for us to put our hope in that which isn't God. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Sometimes this week, take out a piece of paper on the top of it or on your computer wherever you do these things. Ask yourself the question, if I lost blank, would I think my life was gone? If this left me, would I have life? And it could be great, wonderful things like your spouse, like your children. It could be your job. It could be whatever. And if you're able to put something in there, just be honest. You can always erase it. Nobody has to see it. We all have something, some things that we know we would struggle greatly if we lost. And some just legitimate, just a legitimate grief over the loss of certain things we love. And if there's no grief, there was no love. And that's not good either. But you get my point. If life would be over at that point, not worth living at that point. And there could be no restoration of anything. And that was God for you. Be cautious, be careful. If it's another person, if it's your career, if it's your career, there's always somebody smarter, trust me. There's always somebody coming up. There's always somebody luckier. There's always somebody uh, better connected. Uh, it just is true. If it's your image, cool marches on. It really does. I was cool once. Right? It just marches on. Death ultimately exposes all of these gods. Because at that moment in time, we try to call on them all and none of them can help us. It was Francis Schaeffer, I think, who said, death is the final apologetic, the final defense, the final thing that convinces us that all these things aren't God, that only God is God. And and if we don't have him, we have nothing at that point in time. And we must then cling to him. One other thing quickly. This priest was the great-grandson of Moses. And you want to say, he should have known better. You want to say, didn't the household of Moses get a free pass somehow? And, and everybody who was related to Moses in any way throughout the generations would, would be faithful. And that's scary. Because it's not your great-grandfather's faith or your grandmother's faith or your mother's faith or your... It's yours. To trust. To believe. Now, in those days, there was no king in... Israel, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Kings would come, but until one king came. One of the great things about Advent and Christmas is the wise men, because 
We don't know how many there were. We don't know quite where they came from. I always tease that when we put up our manger scene every year, we should put the wise men in the kitchen because they're not right with everybody yet. It's going to take a while. But one thing we glean from them, they came to worship a king. And that's the revelation. That's the epiphany. He's king. And now there is a king who's the righteous king to lead us into righteousness. And so now we look to him because you see, he's come, this Jesus. He's come to reveal who God is. So we can really know God. How does John put it in his first chapter? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus. See, there's no knowing God without knowing Jesus. There's no coming to God without coming through Jesus. There's no worship of God unless you trust in Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring so much? We're declaring that God has come and lived among us so that we can know him, really know him. We we don't have to leave it up to our own imaginations. We just we know Jesus. We read of Jesus. We, 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 we know him revealed to us by his spirit. Yes, we, we know him. But we don't have to imagine anything. We don't have to conjure it up. We don't have to think of it our own way. When we say, who is God? We think of Jesus. What's he like? We think of Jesus. And even here we see his righteousness. His holiness. Sin must be dealt with. For it's an offense to God. So righteousness is served. But what we see in Jesus' perfect obedience and righteousness and holiness in his life, and therefore we see in this compassion and love and grace and mercy because he took it for us. Do you see it? Let's pray, Father. Thank you for giving us your son that we might, through him, Know God. Thank you that in him we see your righteousness and holiness, power, wisdom, 
grace, mercy, compassion, kindness, patience. Please, I pray, so work in us that we do not use our our imaginations to think up who you are. but that you would enable us to know who you are as we read the scripture, as we come to know Jesus by your spirit. Help us. Keep us. Enable us to live, to worship you rightly, to know you deeply and profoundly. So please, I pray at this moment, just take this bread and this juice as you've instructed us And enable us to know your presence among us. Please give us grace. And this I pray in Jesus' name.